Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett, joining me as always, my traveling, charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. It says a lot about dedication, showing up to, to, on time to work, it says a lot about dedication, showing up with a good attitude, but to do both in another country shows a higher level of dedication than... Um, they might uh, people might expect, and so I'm really happy that we have another great locale today. Uh, Joe, you're shooting today from where? Where do we find you at? I'm, I'm shooting from Rome, Italy. So right. you actually said good morning. It's actually good night to me. It's uh, now 7:35 p.m. Um, finished traveling through Greece. I finished my exile in Mykonos as I waited for my credit card. Funny thing, I never got my credit card, but I did end up fleeing the island for another island called Crete, um, which ended up being my favorite island, hmm. uh, mainly because it wasn't expensive and uh, it wasn't like a party island like Mykonos was. Um, I mean, Mykonos is just insane. It's like nothing but nines and tens, fake boobs everywhere, Botox, lip jobs all the good stuff, you know, and, and then all the shops are like Louis Vuitton, et cetera. Everything's expensive. I mean, not any more expensive than like a Portland or like a, probably like a downtown Houston area from what I would imagine. But uh, by Greek standards, it's pretty, pretty expensive. Uh, got to Crete. It was fun. Um, stayed there for a couple of days and decided to continue my journey. Like with the progress in civilization, the Greeks used to dominate and then it moved over to Rome. So did I. And today I am broadcasting from Rome. Rome. When when in Rome, shoot a podcast. We have two very good chapters of this book. They were talking about chapter 15 and 16 again, nearly rounding out our journey through the beginning of infinity, a journey that is never complete. But we are talking today about 15, the evolution of culture, and 16, the evolution of creativity. And of course, we'll be bringing you another movie review about halfway through this episode um, as well. So let's hop right into it. Um, chapter 15 and chapter 16, I would say the, the linchpin of that episode is understanding the distinction between a static society and a dynamic society. Yes. Um, so chapter 15, uh, evolu no, it's not evolution of culture. Sorry. Well, it is evolution of culture. Chapter 15. Did I, yes. did, did I say it wrong? About, yeah. Did no, I say no, wrong? You, you, oh. you got it. I'm, I'm just catching up. So e evolution of culture, it talks about why, why some civilizations continue to advance and like pick up the pace on advancing in terms of culture. And it really breaks down culture and the advancement of culture to this subatomic particle, if you will, called the meme. So I, when I started reading this book, I was not expecting to read an entire chapter on memes, but uh, this chapter definitely surprised me with that. And again, memes go back to, I think, what uh, Richard Dawkins had originally coined as the term. And it's essentially just something, a piece of knowledge, a piece of information that lives on its own, right? So it's not, it's not controlled. It's not like, it doesn't necessarily have to be written down. It can be passed on orally. And it's just something that's so useful as a piece of information that it, it just continues through society. It continues through culture. Um, an example would be like knowing how to make a fire, like knowing how to make a campfire. Like that's, that's a meme because it's a, uh, it's a piece of information that serves humanity enough so that the meme itself continues to exist on its own as its own individual entity. And these memes eventually, through this process of conjecture and criticism, and alongside with human creativity, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, uh, get to be better and better memes and better and better ideas. And then they eventually lead to progress in society. But the problem is that some societies don't really progress at all, right? Like they just assume this static position as David Deutsch likes to call it. And an example of this would be like the stone age. He gave an example of how during the stone age, people would use tools 
like what stone tools for their jobs. And he noted that today it's hard to identify what, it's hard to identify what era some of these tools came from, what the exact year was. We only have like a resolution of like a few thousand years because these stone tools were around for a few thousand years. And he contrasted that with that static society with the dynamic society like today, where we have, uh, you know, he's talking about the computer he's writing this book on. Like if you were to look at a computer from an archeological perspective, you'd be able to date it within just a few months, just because that's how fast technology evolves. And he touched on a few items like why, what makes a static society, what makes a dynamic society. Um, the biggest thing he said, he, he came up with some ideas that a static society might exist because, uh, because there's, some, there's some, some, some societal gain, like it, there's a lot of societal pressure not to change. And when that exists, then there's really no change. Or when you suppress news or when you suppress the, the passing of information, the free flow of information, you make your society static. But it's not completely static. It evolves slowly, uh, more so just through uh, errors and replication of memes than anything. And then some of them invariably will be better. Some will be worse. But at, at a high level, that's what I took away from this chapter. Um, what, what did you take away? What did I miss? No, no, I thought you hit all the all the nails on the head. Um, I let's let's take a step back and I guess I think you were you were talking about this uh, defining a rational versus an anti-rational meme as being the explanation for a society that changes or one that stays the same. A rational meme, as defined by David Deutsch is a meme that depends on critical thinking for its successful replication. And an anti-rational meme is a meme that depends on uncritical thinking for its successful replication. And so every meme, you know, if we kind of anthropomorphize these things just a little bit for the conversation, but you know, every, every meme wants to replicate. And so it's a matter of what, what strategy does a meme use for, for replication. And that information is embodied in the meme itself. So the meme is kind of the, the, the substance of the meme plus its strategy for replication. And so some, some ideas are, are helped by critical thinking. And he gives an example of these as being certain scientific theories. But if you have a, a really good scientific theory, the more criticism and scrutiny that you apply to that theory, the, the better you're helping is replication because that theory by describing the real world is made more accurate and harder to vary by critical thinking. So if you measure, you know, say, you know, some constant in the universe or something, the, and you have an idea behind, behind what you're measuring, the, the more critically that you, you, you challenge that idea, the more you're, you're helping it replicate because whatever errors that may come around, you know, through doing the experiment or whatever, um, are, are able to be, you know, in a sense, corrected for because it, because it is a good explanation. Um, when you create errors through, through, through uh, replication, those errors can be corrected because it comports to the truth that you can use to correct the errors. An anti-rational meme, he gives the example of a hobgoblin. I don't know if that's maybe more popular in England or something, but, you know, maybe a better example would be, you know, something like a demon or something. But in, a, in general, just a bad explanation those, those survive because people don't critically think about them. And as a result, the things in them that are incorrect, for example, that a hobgoblin exists, if you have an explanation for something that depends on, on a hobgoblin being the explanation for why we do or don't do certain things, if you thought critically about that, you would think, well, hobgoblins aren't real, so therefore that isn't you know, a good meme, and that would, you might be less likely to replicate that idea or that meme. But if you accept uncritically that hobgoblins exist, then that won't hinder you in the replication effort. And so in a, in a static society where you're not thinking critically and are not challenging ideas, the kind of memes that depend on that will, will, will uh, flourish versus a dynamic society which encourages, not, not just allows, but encourages critical thinking and challenging of ideas. The memes that will survive will be those that comport to the truth, because as they're being criticized, they will continue to uh, survive. So I think those are two very important distinctions. And 
it is amazing to think, and I know this has come up before in our show, but for hundreds of thousands of years, humans lived in almost the exact same way as their ancestors did. There was just no change at all in society. And he has this interesting point that in order for a society like that to exist with a human mind, it would have to have in place societal norms that extinguish human creativity. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's kind of this thinking, I don't like it at all. I've, I've, and I've mentioned it before on this show, and I probably maybe should have spent more time on it, but this kind of glorification of primitivism that all of our problems come from society or something like that. Of course, every society has problems, but to somehow glorify primitivism is so unbelievably stupid. And he explains why in this chapter. The only way that a society like that exists for a long period of time is by destroying the one thing that makes us human beings, which is human creativity. In a, in a society that encourages right. and supports human creativity, you do not have static societies. So when you observe a static society, you are observing one in which human creativity has been extinguished. Now, who would wish for such a thing? Only an idiot or somebody who doesn't value humanity or doesn't value human creativity. And so, I, and he, of course, David Deutsch is an excellent writer. I mean, he put that very succinctly in this chapter. Um, but it, it's a point that I think we should spend more time focusing on because certainly society will always have problems. That's another trope of beginning of infinity. There all, you know, problems are inevitable, but they can be solved. And I don't think we want to solve society's problems by destroying what makes us human, i.e. by being less creative, stagnant, uh, primitive people. Just my opinion, but I mean, I, I really hope that people don't embrace that stupid idea um, in order to not have to uh, deal with the fallout of living in such a place. I don't want to live in such a place. I suspect you don't either. But yeah. um, if we don't think critically about what that means, we're liable to kind of maybe slip into that mindset or something uh, along those lines. But in any event, that would, th- those were my main takeaways from chapter 15. And I thought this was an extremely important chapter of the book. Yep. I said that now about many chapters. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I made this point with, uh, with, with uh, Jack when we had him on a few episodes ago, but the, the second half of the book is much more serious about and, and the first half. And it really lays out the consequences for the choices that we make as a civilization. Oh, humans have never been in the position that we are in now, a long-term, rapidly transforming society has never existed before. We are in that transition now, and is it's very critical that we continue to understand the benefits of a dynamic society in order to defend them against, in this case, memes in, in some sense, uh, anti-rational memes that would wish to transform that world into a static world in which we would essentially stop being people. Yeah. And to, to put some context behind that, he gave a really good example in the evolution of culture chapter. Um, I just highlighted this here, so I'll just read it straight from, straight, from the, straight from the man himself. So here he's talking about, um, it might not have been, especially as the lack of critical sophistication is that in a static society would leave people vulnerable to false and harmful ideas from which their taboos did not protect them. For instance, when the Black Death Plague destabilized the static societies of Europe in the 14th century, the new ideas for plague prevention that spread best were extremely bad ones. Sounds familiar? Many people decided that this was the end of the world and that therefore attempting any further earthly improvements was pointless. Many went out to kill Jews or witches. Many crowded together in churches and monasteries to pray thus unwittingly facilitating the spread of the disease, which was carried by fleas. A cult called the Flagellants arose, whose members devoted their lives to flogging themselves and to preaching all the above measures in order to prove to God that his children were sorry. All these ideas were functionally harmful as well as factually false and were eventually suppressed by the authorities in their drive to return to stasis. And then he goes on to make the point that sometimes it's uh, having a static society is actually helpful because it like just kind of keeps you from fucking up things more or changing things more. But I like this example because this book was obviously written like, I don't know, maybe a decade before coronavirus came out. 
but it, it just seems like the parallels still exist. Like we're still following a lot of these, a lot of these ideas that we're just kind of treating as like doctrine. Like we're just saying like, oh, just because this person said this, this is the only way to do it. Anyone that doesn't do this doesn't fall science, which has become the new parochial do doctrine. And therefore, uh, they're wrong. And there's a societal pressure to just jump on this bandwagon. And um, I, honestly, I think some of the ideas today are no different than going out to kill the Jews and the witches back in the day, um, or to pray it away in a lot of ways. Well, and I would say, I mean, even a more on the nose example are the people that didn't want to follow like, hey, don't go to church because it's a crowded place. No, we have to go. We'll be protected by our religion. No, yes. and, 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 and let, let, let's give fair point to many religious people, including including religious leaders who were saying like, yeah, we're not encouraging this. We don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, in other words, it wasn't as if there was a schism between religious people and not. That was certainly not the case. I even I believe I even remember Ben Shapiro, who's a practicing Jew, was very much like, yeah, there's no doctrine that requires that you go to church if there's a play going around. Like, that's just a dumb idea. And um, it is, it is, and I always like the example of the, of the flogging yourself. I mean, how could that possibly be the way to approach? But, but that, that yeah, idea. You got to beat the demons out, Jim. You got to right, beat the demons out. But it, it's, it's a very, it's a very important point that he makes because in it, this, this actually comes up later in the book and I think also before, but there is a penalty to being stagnant because you are, even if you're a stagnant society that is doing well in your current place and time, you are unlikely to continue to do well if things change. And the, the benefit of a dynamic society among just kind of the moral benefits is this notion of wealth creation that you create things and you, you, you expand your repertoire of physical transformations, right? That's the definition that he gives. But the thing to remember is that because we have ways of recording things, even when we create wealth, we don't have to implement it right away. We can kind of save it. And so there, there's value in being creative and being dynamic, even when things are staying the same, because you're accumulating knowledge that can be used if things change. And that's, that, that's a value and a benefit that a dynamic society has over a static one. Now, at any, at, on, on day one, when things haven't changed yet, maybe they're both equally good at surviving day one, but maybe on day two, things are a little different. And now if they're sufficiently different, the people that are in the static world no longer have any options with, from, from which to pick from, whereas people that have been trained and had to think critically and have been accumulating knowledge that maybe wasn't useful before, now may all of a sudden become useful in the future. And I, I say that only to preface that I think, it, I think sometimes when we, when we think about like what scientists are doing, it's always like, well, it's hard to really explain what the value is. And a lot, of, a lot of science is just kind of done and they do experiments and they write papers and it's just this whole web and it's hard to get into and it's complicated and confusing and so on and so forth. I would say just there, there's always the possibility that any scientific discovery is essentially useless that's possible but it's also possible that, that its usefulness just hasn't been hasn't been discovered yet there's kind of a similar saying around uh, very pure very theoretical mathematical research that you know that basically pure math is math that just hasn't found or that hasn't found an application yet but that one day it might which is not to say that the value of mathematical research isn't is in its application i'm not saying that i'm saying that it's always possible. There, there's always value in expanding our knowledge, even if it's not immediately useful because it may become useful um, in the future. And I, 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 I sometimes I worry that that is, is left or that people don't, I would also put myself in that category that we don't fully appreciate the value of knowledge as just an abstraction, but also the value of knowledge um, as increasing our optionality towards towards the future, that there's just now more things we can deal with the more that we know. And um, in order to do that, we have to value that process. We have to value critical thinking, telling ourselves that we're wrong, moving on, not, our, not an easy thing to do, so on and so forth. But um, and, and I think, like I said, I think this I is just a crucial chapter for the book. I think this is a crucial, crucial chapter for the, for the book. 
Yeah, I, I I see some glaring attacks at that process today that just seem obvious. I mean, especially after reading this, it just seems so obvious that we. He gave another example of how it's 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 within a societal society's best interest to uh, keep things static. Like it's maybe not within their best interest, but of its nature. And he had an example of of children. Like let's brainwash our children uh, in a way that allows them to not be creative let's let's destroy their creativity or in a way gender, to do that is by, gender by giving them the same curriculum right that was another one too like gender stereotypes like boys are this way girls are that way maybe right. i mean right you know? yeah i i, I and it's interesting I think, how that works out because the gender stereotypes like you have these old school stereotypes existed as memes as he's defined them for hundreds of years and now you have some counter memes that are coming to the to the forefront that are saying that, okay, like maybe these traditional memes aren't right. And it, it's interesting because. Oh, you might be frozen. Which ones carry on. Wait, go back about 10 seconds. And I think you froze just for a moment, but. Okay. Yeah. How's this? Am I back? You're, you're back. You're back. Yeah. So, yeah. So oh, I, yeah. I was saying that it, it's interesting how you can watch from like a third person perspective this battle of memes play out between okay what is the right role of genders between men and women is it the same meme that's been passed around for hundreds of years or are these new memes from just the past hundred years more relevant and you get to see it play out you get to see conjecture and criticism on both sides um, unfortunately I think part of the argument is also influenced by suppression of certain ideas um, by internet providers who they may be um, however, it's still interesting to watch this. And I think overall, as I'm reading these chapters, it's, I'm starting to realize that the genius of David Deutsch is being able to take this like third, third person perspective and just really look at society, not from like an inside approach, not from inside the system, but from being out of it and saying that, okay, here's some like hard and fast laws of what makes knowledge good, what makes good information, what makes bad information. And this is just the nature of humans and how it arises. And I think to be able to look at things from that perspective is super profound. And uh, I mean, honestly, like reading this text is only, it almost feels like more philosophy than physics to me. I agree. Well, let's, let's, I, I want to stay on focus on this notion of, of, and, I, and I, it will actually serve as a nice transition to our next chapter on creativity, but maybe both of us challenge ourselves what, what would be an example of a, of a school activity that you thought really did encourage creativity in other words let's 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 stipulate for the conversation that the the architect or the the archetypical good school is one that encourages and fosters creativity do you have any examples of uh, in your schooling that you thought lived up to that bar or that very nearly lived up to that to that bar of encouraging creativity and, and that kind of thing versus just the kind of rote memorize learn the solution path take the test move on to the next one do you have examples where creativity appeared to be the main focus no i i can't think of any to be honest and i can think of ways it didn't like just the nature of having like a mathematics class of having a science class of having right. an english class compartmentalized like those are, yeah. yeah they're just putting like arbitrary road posts or street signs like in the psyche of the children like in a way that doesn't allow for creativity like i okay so sure it's helpful to learn how to read and write it's helpful to learn science it's helpful to learn laws of physics etc but the child would be a lot more creative if you were and this is hypothetical, I'm not suggesting it, but in, with respect to creativity, like what if the child were to develop without any of those preconceived notions? Like how creative would they be? How many new ideas would come out, um, you know, just different ideas as opposed to what we have now? Like, and then it's, and it totally just brainwashes them into having this like nine to five atmosphere, this nine to five schedule that they just Wait, assume what, is the way to do it. What was the movie that, that you watched where the guy takes his family out into the woods and you remember, remember that movie you watched? What was that movie? Oh called? yeah. With, uh, with, with Viggo Mortensen. Right. Right. With, with, uh, with, uh, Aragon. what was that movie called? You yeah. It's called Mr. Fan Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Okay. So I, I actually watched that movie after your recommendation. I thought it was a great movie. By Re the way. Recent, recently. 
like a month ago or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, is that, is that closer to your vision? Let's, let's, let, let, let's take out the scenery, the forest, everything that, that you could do that in a city probably I'm saying, but is that your notion of what creativity where you, you basically kind of give a kid a library and say, here is, you know, or so, maybe not even a library, but just something, yeah. you know, where you, you've got to give them the free range in, in some sense and allow them to wander where their minds take them. Is that, is that more what you're, what, what you're thinking the, the future of education should look like more, more flexibility in curriculum? Um, yeah. I mean, I think about that movie actually quite a bit as I read through this book, like uh, very, very commonly, I think about it, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there should be any shoulds or should nots, but I think that if your goal is to foster more creativity and then that's the way to do it. I mean, like there was, there was a couple of scenes like where it was like these kids, you know, are kind of raised in the forest and they've been learning all these languages and reading all these books and like doing all these things, playing instruments. And then they're brought to the city at one point and then they're sitting down at a table with like their cousins or something. And their cousins are like, you know, all they do is like play video games and have like gelled spiked hair and like branded t-shirts and all this. And it, it really painted a contrast like it seemed like those those kids were the robots and the other kids were you know more free-spirited free-thinking and I mean maybe a better question is like how would I want to raise my kids or like what curriculum would I want them to learn and I mean reading through this book especially has contributed more than anything to the case for homeschooling or uh, maybe at a minimum not putting them in just a standard public curriculum so do you remember in college, maybe even in high school, there was the, the of course, the, the one acronym that you'll for sure know is STEM, right? So science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and math. Okay. So we all, everyone knows that acronym or, yeah, I guess it, and everyone knows that acronym. At some point, and I, I think it was when we were in college, at some point that, that acronym became replaced with another acronym called STEAM. Now, do you remember this one? Okay, so STEAM took the same ones, science, technology, engineering, added in an A for art, art and mathematics. At the time, I thought it was completely stupid. I thought this defeats the purpose. This is everything. I was wrong for having thought that because, in fact, that is precisely the kind of way that we ought to be approaching education. In other words, we ought to be viewing all of these subjects as part of a bigger picture which is yeah. the real world, if you will, reality, if you will. And it is, it is arbitrary to stipulate, oh, you're a STEM person, you're an art person, you're whatever. Obviously, we'll all have different you know, specialties to some regard, we'll have different interests. But at the time, I thought it was a mistake because I thought these things have nothing in common. But of course, at the root of all you know, discovery is creativity. And that process of creativity between an artistic discovery, which are which exists, and a mathematical discovery or engineering discovery, are all rooted in creativity. That they're actually much more common than we might think, and it's arbitrary that we kind of distinguish the two. Um, I, I I would I just finished kind of rereading, and I've read it before, but there's a really interesting book on on the the sociology, I guess, of, I know he calls the humanities of science, a book written by Garrett DeSola Price called Science Since Babylon. And in effect, what he argues is that um, there's probably a lot of add-on benefit to taking somebody who is, say, a biochemist and having them take a class in some high-level abstract mathematical class, like some kind of, you know, algebraic topology or something like that. Some really far out class, just because it'll, 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 it'll get them thinking about things in a different way. And when I think of, of the value of STEM, or rather STEAM, which I think is better than STEM, I think you, it, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's not allowing people to build arbitrary compartments around their mind around, you know, now I'm doing engineering work. Now I'm doing math work. Now I'm doing artwork. Now I'm doing that. No, it's, it's, we're all doing the same thing. We're all thinking, we're all being creative. And um, I think that that mindset, which I know I mocked when I was younger and I, I can probably yeah. remember exactly what I was mocking. Um, it was just 
wrong. It was just an, an incorrect judgment of an idea that I think based mostly on, on this book and some other books, I think is actually a really good idea for improving how we approach both subjects, both artistic subjects and traditional STEM subjects. Yeah, they ought to be more unified and less separated. I'm, I'm very interested in, after, especially after reading the chapter review last week on, on uh, what makes the flower beautiful, uh, the, the, the boundary between science and art and just understanding like that there's a lot more commonalities between the two than you think. So like, it makes sense to throw that A right in the middle of STEM and make this theme. But it's, it, it's very hard to articulate, very hard to describe, and very hard to understand what the similarities are between the two. But they're, it's almost like they're two in a box, they're the same thing. Right, and of course, the most cliche example would be, you know, Da Vinci, right? Who was like the gifted artist and the gifted engineer, the inventor, whatever. I think oh, yeah. probably the best way to understand Da Vinci was that he was just somebody that was just extremely creative. And therefore could propose all of these ideas in all of these different realms. You know, here's, here's a flying machine. Here's something about anatomy. Here's something about whatever. Um, at the root of it was his ability to be well, creative. Um, yes, Da Vinci. And then, uh, so I've actually got to go uh, visit the Vatican yesterday. And a lot, you know, the Sistine Chapel has that amazing ceiling painted by Michelangelo. And right. it's like, there's so many different pieces of artwork there, but you just see the Michelangelo piece and it just pops. You see the Raphael pieces and they just yeah. pop. You see the the Bonatello, the other Ninja Turtle pieces, and they just they just pop. You know, there's something different about them. And there was one thing that uh, stuck with me. It was there's this statue. It, um, so here at the Vatican, they have a lot of copies of statues, Roman copies of like famous Greek statues from back in the day. And there's this one statue, I think it was like, a, a, I don't know, a Zeus or something, but they uncovered the replica and it was, it was like posed like this and it was like missing the arm. So it was like a pose, a full body pose and the arm was missing. And the Pope at the time, like, liked the statue so much that he uh, commissioned Michelangelo to just like finish the arm, like just say, like, I don't know what the arm looks like. Go ahead, take your best crack at it and like, just make it look good. So Michelangelo, like, uh, composed the arm in a certain way and he positioned it and then other artists were challenged to do the same thing with other replicas and I guess like a little while later hundreds of years later they unearthed the original Greek statue and, and boom it was spot on with how da Vinci had had oriented it just because he could see it you know he had like some right. sixth sense for seeing the balance of like how the well, arm was posed like the muscles how they were contracted at that time and he was able to right. nail it and it's like, how, how do you do that? That's like more than art at that point. That's like a sophisticated comprehension of just balance. Well, I think it's, it's, it's almost like the, the flower and the bee, right? Where the fly or the bee recognizes something objectively true about the shape of the flower and therefore knows that's where to go. A truly gifted artist must have been able to understand what, the, the, the idea, if you will, in the other artist's piece of art to know how to how to fix it. He knew what they were trying to do, which I think would be a very, I mean, anecdotally, of course, but another good example of there being some kind of objective standard in art that, no, like, this is actually the right way for how the arm should look. And how do we know mm -hmm. that? We now have had two gifted artists that came up with the exact same shape. Like, yeah. it wasn't giving you a middle finger. It wasn't making some obscene gesture. It was whatever the pose was like that was that that was the correct way um, to do it. And, um, you know, I, I it would be interesting. This would be an interesting research project. Take take a, a lesser known piece of music from one of the grades and mm -hmm. cut out a section like 10 notes or something. Cut out 10 notes of the piece or whatever you would do and go to all the world's best composers and say, you know, what, what, what are the correct notes here? Yeah, finish this piece. Exactly, finish this piece. And to see if there's some, if, 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 there, if there's a, a uniform idea around, around what that should be. I, I, one of the ideas that sticks out to me in this book, and I think it's an important idea for many reasons, but I think oftentimes we make too much of, of, of individuals being different from one another. I think that, that people kind of push individualism for the wrong reasons. And I think an interesting thing to reflect on is that the truth converges. 
that even though we're all individuals, when something is true, we should all converge towards it. And so even though you might have all these great composers, you would expect that there'd be a narrow range of things that would make sense in, in that piece of music. Uh, a lot of things would be wrong and that a, a few small things would be good and that maybe one thing would be correct, something like that. And, um, but that would be an interesting, I wonder if that's ever been done before, if they've taken a piece of music and say, finish it. You know, this is from Bach. You don't know the piece of music. It's never been shown before, but here it is. And now you have to go finish it. And yeah, conceivably, the better the piece of music from Bach is, the better it is, the fewer good answers there would be, the less ambiguity there would be. Again, you would, you know, you would converge, you know, Bach's previous notes of the music would leave you fewer options that would work for that, the better it was. It would, it would limit your options for what would be good or bad. And it would take a good musician to know those limitations and then to, to put them into place. That could be a fun project. Yeah, I, don't I think know. that would be an awesome project. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know nothing about music. I, I don't know how that would work, but uh, if anybody here is a music fan, send me a note, we'll figure this out. Um, send you a note, send you a couple notes. Send me a couple, yeah, very nice. Um, <laughs> next is chapter 16. Let's do a remove and review first, and then let's move on to, uh, to chapter 16. Um, and another great movie review today. I, I took, I looked over before the episode. Um, it, the, the movie is with uh, Kristen Wiig, who I love. I love Kristen Wiig. Uh, so anyways, go when you're ready. Let's have it for this week. Perfect. So the movie for this week is Barb and Sister Go to Vista Del Mar. And you can watch it on Hulu. So what is it about? After losing their jobs, lifelong friends, Barb and Star, decide to embark on an adventure of a lifetime leaving their small Midwest town for a vacation on the sandy beaches of Vista Del Mar. Is it good? Yes. But you have to be in the mood for something very weird. Bob and Star is from Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo, who previously co-wrote and starred in Wiig's case in Bridesmaids, and it's the sort of movie you don't get to make, at least on a, on a remotely decent budget, unless you've made it hit before. The movie swings and swings hard. The film's opening scenes get progressively more bizarre, leading to an entirely unexpected reveal that I won't spoil here by saying it will remind me of another SNL alums movies, especially with Wig playing a second role. From there, we're introduced to Bob and Star, living in Soft Rock, Nebraska, via snippets of conversation, like Barb finding Mr. Peanut sexy, intercut, with them bopping to Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman. The two later share a plain flight, long conversation about their love of the name Trish and what a woman with the name would be like. And once they arrive at Vista del Mar, there are multiple musical numbers, one heavily featuring seagulls and a talking crab who sounds a lot like the world's most famous actors. It's actually voiced by the guy who played Geoff. Craig Ferguson's robot skeleton sidekick on The Late Late Show, which is somehow even better. It's a wild ride through and through, and most of it works. Rig remains a comedic treasure, while Mumolo pr proves capable of keeping up with her, and the two have the chemistry of the real friends they actually are. The surprise is Jamie Dornan, best known as Christian Grey in the Fifty Shades trilogy, as the love interest. The script gives him more to play than just eye candy. And when he can't quite match the absurdity around him the way John Hamm did in Bridesmaids, he proves an able comedic actor. They go for broke weirdness, and Momolo and Wig's script is certainly to be admired. But it's hard not to come to the conclusion they'd have been better served mixing some of the lesser gags. There's a hotel-slash-motel mix-up that adds nothing to the film but runtime. And Damon Wayans Jr. is largely wasted with a one-dimensional character whose bit is played out almost immediately. You're not going to hit every joke in every comedy, especially one as idiosyncratic as this. But it helps when you keep things tighter than the hour and 47 minutes here. It's not an instant classic, but Wig and Momolo mine the humor to be found in two good-natured middle-aged women for all it's worth and throw in plenty of absurdity to go along with it. You certainly won't see another movie like this this year. 
um, other films to watch. For another unique comedy built around female friendship, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. For another all-out comedy from SLL, SNL alum, Hot Rod. And for more full-on absurdity, Wet Hot American Summer. I'm, uh, I'll have to watch this one. I haven't seen it yet. I, I love, like I said, yeah, I love same. Kristen Wiig. She's a comedic genius. Bridesmaids is literally rolling on the floor laughing. It's such a good movie. Um, I love absurdist comedy. It's my favorite kind of comedy. Um, I could list other movies that meet that definition. Maybe another episode I will, but I love absurdity. I love absurd comedy. Um, there is, talking about about uh, Jamie Doran or whatever his name is from, from Fifty Shades, there was some, some controversy when he was cast in that role. And I wanted to just spend a minute to address that. As somebody who has read Fifty Shades and as somebody who has seen the movies, oh, Jim. Um, I actually like, him in that role so i would just say yes he is my christian and uh i think i've had enough of people being smirk and smug um about him i think he did a great job in that role and um i want to thank him for for having done so if you haven't seen that film series be sure to check it out uh well worth your time the book's not so much um okay and also it was joe i think it says at the beginning anybody who wants to watch that movie when we did one that we just reviewed, check it out on Hulu. Um, you can find it on Hulu. Very good. Um, okay, the evolution of creativity. We're going from comedic genius, art, writing, and now we're talking about creativity. Fittingly so that our movie reviewer, unprovoked, picked a comedy because the beginning of this chapter talks about the possible evolution of jokes. Where do jokes come mm -hmm. from? Is that, is that question directed to me? <laughs> if you want it, I certainly don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's like asking like, what makes a flower beautiful, right? Like, it, right. it's kind of a trick question. Like, it's, it's not really clear. Like, he talked about how there's some, some aspect of, of, of surprise in it, like misdirection but that's not always the case because sometimes you know, you've heard a joke multiple times and it's still funny, like each time you hear it. So he gave that example of one of the things that makes a joke funny. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to answer. How would you answer that? Um, with a joke? No, I think <laughs> um, one of the things that I, that I liked about, about his answer is that, um, so, one, maybe start with the motivation. Why, why would a joke evolve? Let's, let, let's you know, if we, even if you don't know what makes a joke funny, why would a joke be useful? And if you put this in kind of the context of the meme framework, one reason that, that, that a joke would evolve is that as we tell stories around the campfire, we'll slowly but surely repeat the story inaccurately. We'll make mistakes through the oral tradition. We'll change a word here, change a word there. You know, we take two characters, combine them into one. That's the, you know, the Scott Adams recipe for telling a story in public, combine characters, keep it short. We do that all the time. So, you know, so on and so forth. And that through that process, we would accidentally, you know, stumble upon a version of a story that ended up being funny. And because it ended up being funny, that story had a better chance of being repeated than a story that was not funny. And so we can see there, there's, there's a selective pressure in, in things being funny. We don't have to know what, what makes something funny to know that it, it being funny helps it the same way that a flower being distinct and beautiful allows insects to find it you know, in the jungle. Even if we don't understand exactly how they do that, we know that they do by virtue of the fact that the bees find the flowers and that if the, if the flowers change in certain ways or if it's, if it's replicated poorly, it won't have the same effect. The same way that if somebody butchers a joke on the punchline, it all of a sudden stops being funny. And I was like, I'm not going to say it that way. I was kind of, I was a little rough. Um, as someone who's told many jokes in a life, I've been in that situation many a time. You learn very quickly what does and doesn't make something funny just through trial and error. Um, and then you remember that for next time. 
So, uh, but I thought that was interesting because um, I, we, I have not read this book yet, but I know there's a fan of the show who recommended that we read a book called Sapiens. And one of the kind of core points of that book is that, you know, human beings do a lot of storytelling. And um, of course, any, I would say most times that we're telling a story, we're probably trying to be funny. I mean, I would say, you know, that that's usually the case. We're talking, we're trying to get a laugh out of somebody and not a hundred percent of the time, but I would say we spend more time trying to be funny than we, than we do trying to be scary, um, which is interesting. Uh, although sometimes we do try to be scary. I mean, we tell like a campfire story or something like that. But I would say most people spend more time telling jokes than they do telling horror stories. So anyways, yeah. I thought that was an interesting kind of segue into this. We're talking about Kristen Wiig, who certainly is funny. Um, but I was thinking, you know, why would something be, why, why would something being funny be beneficial? And then, simply because it will increase the chance that it will be repeated. And we see that in a movie by virtue of viewings and tickets and all that stuff as well. You see that in the box office record as well. So anyways, an opener for the chapter, which is more broadly about creativity, not just about, about jokes, but more broadly about, about creativity. Um, did, you, did you find his explanation for, for how creativity evolved to be an interesting idea? And, and yeah. start, start by recapping that, but then let's talk about that. Cause I thought that was like a really mind bendy uh, moment in the book for me at least. Well, yeah, it, cause he, he started by laying out the framework that uh, parrots are very different than humans in the sense that they can both repeat phrases. Like they can both repeat memes, but the parrot isn't really repeating it the same way that a human would. Like, and he was talking about uh, Popper being the, uh, the Austrian philosopher that he was or scientist that he was and how he, he, he can state some, some part of his lecture. He could say, give a part of his lecture and then the parrot would repeat it. But that's not really propagating the meme in the same way that humans would because he would be using an Austrian accent and then the parrot would only be able to repeat it in an Austrian accent. He would not be able to, the parrot would not be able to repeat the information in its most basic state or restate it in another way. There's no comprehension. There's no, there's nothing there, but for the human, it would be different. And he extends this example onto apes as well. And like apes learning how to crack nuts, which I didn't totally understand. Maybe you can explain that to me, but he was just saying that they were doing it in more or less in a limited capacity compared to humans. So it begs the question, where did, how did humans learn how to be creative? Like what, what, what evolutionary uh, situation created that? And I mean, he brings up examples like, okay, maybe we humans filled this unique niche where like when you were more creative, your chances of survival were increased and you had more sexual mates and that kind of propagated, but he gave a few examples and he said that, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say, like, we don't really know for sure, but there's something about this trait of creativity and comprehension that humans have that separates us from the animals. Um, he did say that he pointed the Machiavellian hypothesis that uh, human intelligence involved in order to predict the behavior of others and to fool them which I thought was interesting. And um, I mean, that's certainly like not an idea to shake a stick at, but uh, that, that was my understanding is it's kind of still an open-ended question, but there was just a couple ideas. Did any of those ideas stand out to you? Yeah, no, I thought that, those were good points you made. Um, I like, so let's start, kind of start by, let's, let's go back to talk about what separates humans from, uh, from other animals that do mimic copy behavior. A, a parrot copies a noise, but it doesn't really have a choice in what it does and doesn't copy. There's a circuitry in its brain that is triggered by some noise and it interprets that noise as maybe being a mating call or something that's beneficial to the bird and it makes the noise. And sometimes that noise happens to be what someone is saying and we're blown away wow the parrot's making these noises it's saying these words but it's really not saying words it's just making noises it's not there's no idea that the parrot has when it's sharing these noises it's just making it can be any arbitrary noises at all and if anybody's ever seen a parrot online 
it can mimic crowd noises. It's very unsettling. Like you'll hear it'll be like, it'll sound like a crowd of people. It's just a bird making noise. What separates human beings from the way that other animals engage in mimicry is that human beings aren't copying behavior through some kind of automatic process. What we're doing is we are observing somebody doing something. We have an idea in our head about what they're trying to do. And we use that idea to understand what we are observing. This is one of the, one of the key points that David Bush makes in this book, which is that it basically it's a knock against empiricism, which is that there's no such thing as empiricism. There's no such thing as just observing data. That doesn't make any sense. You have to have an idea of what you are observing in order to make sense of it. And so for a human being, if we're watching Popper give a lecture, we have an idea in our head that Popper is talking to us about the philosophy of science. And we use that idea to understand the words that he's telling to us. And so when someone says in a lecture from, Dave, from, from Popper, if someone asked you to copy what he was doing or copy what he was saying, we would understand that we don't need to copy his accent we don't need to walk the way that he walks, stand where he stands. What they're asking us for is the information that Popper presented. And because we have an idea of what that information is, we can actually cut out what we don't need to mimic and focus on the, on the mean, the information that we're trying to acquire. What was interesting in the point that David Boyce makes is that creativity is, inter is an integral part of that process because in order to understand what someone is trying to tell us, we are continuously trying to think of ideas that match their explanation. We're observing their explanation, we see it out in the world, and we're continuously producing ideas in our head to try to explain to ourselves what they mean. And we're always engaged in this process. And, the, and what creativity is, it, creativity is that process of creating an idea. Is this what that person means? And then subjecting it to criticism. No, it's not because under this situation, it would be, they would get this answer, I will get this answer. So let me go back and try another idea. That process is creativity, trying to create an idea in our head that matches the idea that we think we are interpreting from the other person. What is interesting about creativity and, it would, and with the point that David Deutsch makes is that had creativity originally came about in a society that was dynamic, we would have ample evidence of that society having existed. But as we said at the beginning of the show, human civilizations, which, in which people were you know, still human beings and therefore still creative, had almost no change for hundreds of thousands of years. So we had mm -hmm. creative people that were living in a society that wasn't changing. How did creativity evolve in such an environment? Why, why didn't it have more of an impact on the world that they were living in? And the answer that David Deutsch gives, which is kind of, which he kind of calls a, a, a cruel joke about creativity, is that people in those societies and static societies that did not value creativity, people yeah. who were creative, increased their ability to reproduce by using their creativity to better remain stagnant than other people to better yeah. copy the norms of society of other people. People who are creative and understand that in this society, there is a prohibition against drinking water from that well. Someone who's creative can understand the lure or the, the, the lore behind that kind of thinking and can understand the, the reasons why the people feel a certain way about that taboo. And then it can modify their actions to better um, to, 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 to better be an example of somebody who follows that taboo and therefore increase their, their, their standing in society. So the, the, the cruel joke, as David Deutsch lays out in this, in this hypothetical, is that creativity evolved to actually help people pretend to be more stagnant than other people to increase their standing in a stagnant society. Um, yeah. that, was a, that was a mind bending moment. Wow. The more creative you are, the better you are at pretending to be stagnant to increase your odds of having the better mate, more food, more, more social status, whatever it may be. That was mind blowing. That was like a holy shit moment in this book for me. I thought it was really interesting. And it, I would be curious to know what the anthropological record is on that. You know, is that wide is is, is, is is that a widespread 
idea or is that more of a niche idea? I have no idea. I would be curious. I would be, would be curious to know. That just goes to show how powerful societal pressure is that it can actually trump the, the natural tendency of humans to be creative, right? Well, I would almost say it shows the, the power of adaptability, that there is someone who's really creative that thinks, you know what, I know I'm going to game this system. They want someone who doesn't, you know, exhibit any change or any threat to, 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 to the social norms. All right, I can understand those rules and I'm going to, you know, in a sense, beat them at their own game almost. So I guess that's yeah. how you want to see it. But, you know, it's almost like if, for people that are that are creative, they, you know, always find a way to win, basically. <laughs> this is just an example of that. Of, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I still don't quite understand how being a big creative person in a society would cost you sexual partners, right? Like, look through at all the inventors, look through at all the famous people that advance society, that change social norms, that like stood out, you know, like the renegades, mm-hmm. like even outlaws, like how th- these guys are getting sexual partners, right? Like there's no, are we saying that back in these stone age that, that, that this, the standard was just different well that would be yeah that, that would be the point that he's saying that in a in a static society you know standing out would be thought of as being a taboo and would make you basically look bad that like in america you're right we do glorify the outlaw kind of interesting but america is a very individualist dynamic society it would make sense in some sense that we would value the outlaw you know it's like we have you know the, the john dillingers and you know the other uh you know ted bundy yeah, exactly right, Ted Bundy. Everybody knows how uh, how great that guy is. Um, but uh, I think that would be, and David Deutsch would explain that as being a, a cultural difference. That, in other words, imagine you're in a society that says we only are going to wear certain colors, and you're like, "Well, I'm going to wear a different color." You can certainly do yeah. that, but at least called be, talking, right? Right. But if you're in a society that doesn't value that, then it's, you're just going to be ignored and thought of as being an idiot. Whereas if there are a group of people that really value that, think, wow, here's a guy who's not afraid to be himself, you know, different, different ballgames. Does that mean that the, the human nature of sexual selection is trumped by society's views? Like it's not something that's encoded in a human basis, but it's encoded think, by route of, of a society. I think, it, I think it's the battle of memes in our mind that we, we, we can have different ideas of what we should and shouldn't value, what we should and shouldn't do. And that it comes down to the strength. I'm giving kind of what David Deutsch would maybe say. I'm trying to put words in his mouth. Right, right. That it would be, you know, the battle of memes in our head that we would have this idea of a meme that um, going against the status quo is bad. And then you might have a certain impulse that it's good. And, you know, I, like, I would say most people have conflicting ideas in their head all the time. And so why, why does one meme went out in some situation and another, one's, another meme went out? I, Maybe there's another meme in there that's trying to arbitrate between the two of them, but yeah. Um, but is it, does there exist something more than memes, like hard-coded human tendencies to be, you know, drawn to certain things, like independent of society? Oh, well, almost. That would be my question. And, yeah, I would think almost. Like for for example, right. I don't know that it's a meme that human beings are attracted. I, I've heard this case made. I don't know how true it is, but you know, one mm-hmm. thing that humans value is uh, like symmetry. Like, so like we have human beings are like bilateral symmetry, you know, we kind of one half of our body looks like the other half of our body. And um, I don't know that that's a meme, you know, that could be genetic. Sure. So we, we certainly have genetic impulses as well, but we also have mimetic impulses or, or mimetic ideas, let's say. And so it's complicated and which is what I think you would expect when you have something as powerful as a brain that has genetic structure to it and then also can harbor ideas in it. It's... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there is, you look at some of this Renaissance art, some like art from back in the day, and it's like, yeah, people like really favored like, like, uh, you know, obese women or like women with like roles, like that was like society's like idea of what was attractive. Or like, even you look at like some of these Greek, pic- Greek statues, and they all have like tiny penises and stuff, because that was like, that, that was, was what was fashion. Yeah. yeah, that was in fashion. Right. I, I don't know, maybe more of it is more societal than we think. Yeah, or maybe there was, you know, it was like an aesthetic setting that it, you know, the kind of the idea meant something else or, you know, who knows? I, I, yeah. I, think, it's, I think it's a good point. Um, 
but I would say certainly um, the, the power of ideas is one that we shouldn't underestimate. I mean, people can be driven to do all sorts of crazy things. I mean, think of life and suicide cults and all that. I mean, there's no biology right. there, you would think, right? And yet it happens. Jonestown happened. I mean, and, uh, you know, that would be, there's probably some genetic part to that as well, but then also certainly the mean part that you had this charismatic leader that put these ideas out. People thought, Hey, that sounds convincing. And then next thing you know, you're dead. So, you know, I mean, that, that was a tragedy of course, but I mean, it, it's, it's, I think, um, the connecting ideas to consequences is an interesting idea in and of itself. And, kind of viewing ourselves as, you know, partly harboring these memes in our head and always, you know, kind of being under the influence of these ideas as they cause themselves to be replicated, which is one of the things that he talks about, like how to identify good memes and bad memes. Like, well, you know, look for memes that invite criticism, look for memes that look for critical thinking. You know, that's yep. to make sure that we're on the beginning of infinity path. Um, Another example, he said, you know, because I said so. If anyone's using that as an argument, it isn't a good argument. And that's a good thing for, I think, I think parents to think about is when you're explaining something to your kid, are you actually explaining it to them? Or are you just saying, because I said so? Now, I understand if you're in a car ride and you're a little annoyed, you're not going to be angels all the time. But I think there should be an effort to bridge that gap of not having standards be arbitrary, but saying, no, like, look, here's, here's why I said not to do that. If you touch that stove, you'll burn your hand. That's why I said not to touch it. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, this, I don't know. This, this isn't in the book. I don't think, I think I read this on David Deutsch's Wikipedia page, but he's involved in a uh, kind of a, a movement of um, trying to reevaluate how we discipline children uh, which would be interesting to talk to him about, but I think he tries to incorporate, you know, that kind of thinking that we don't just have arbitrary yes, no's for kid. And that it, it's less about discipline and less about letting kids kind of do what they want and kind of guiding them or something. I, I don't know. What yeah, they're trying to You hear more about that. Yeah. So anyways, I, like I said, it's on the Wikipedia page. I haven't, I've just have like read it. It's like, Oh, that's interesting. But, um, but I wanted to talk, let's, I know we're running a little low on time. There's a couple of things I wanted to get back to on, uh, on, on this idea of how we learn, of how we learn things and this idea that we don't, we're not like computers. We don't, we don't download information into our minds. We don't work that way. We learn by, certainly by, we observe things that that is true, but we learn by coming up with ideas to explain those observations. And one of the observations may be someone explaining to us an idea we come up with our own ideas and then we see how well the two compare to one another. And I, to me, that's just a really interesting process. And I mean, one that I wouldn't have thought is how we learn until I read this book, but, but it, it, it has a similar feel to it as another book that we both have read called the brain from the inside out, that the mm. brain is not this kind of passive downloading computer machine, but is yeah. an active experimenter that is always in the process of creating these little experiments to understand the world around it. Um, that to me seems a very, a very human thing and one that we should be more aware of and should, be, should, should spend more time thinking about because we are not computers. And it's important to know that we're not computers. We're not machines. We're not other animals. We're different. You know, David Deutsch calls us the universal constructor. That's, that's a great term. That's, that's perfectly fine. I think it's important to understand those differences at a qualitative level because they're important to understand our place in this universe, if you will. Sure. I, I think that I, I as well was equally as impressed with his uh, explanations for how we learn and how we're not just mimicking things, but we're just setting up these little tests and through creativity and how creativity is essential in learning. Um, I think those are all some great points. And like you said, we are, we are running a little low on time here. Um, did you have any closing thoughts on the chapter before closing this out here? There's a, a quote from, from Tolstoy about 
every something like every unhappy family is the same. I think is how the saying goes. Every happy family is different. Something like that. Um, I always get it backwards. I don't. I'm under, mm-hmm. I've never read Tolstoy. I'm not pretending that I've read it before. I know the quote because it's in Peter Thiel's book Zero to One. And um, in that book, Peter Thiel lays out the case for basically companies to become little local monopolies to avoid competition. That companies that reach that level of monopoly um, are all different and that companies that are competing all look the same. And I thought it was an interesting kind of dichotomy. And I think it applies really well to this notion of a static society versus a golden age dynamic society. Static societies all look different. They all have their taboos. They all have their primitive practices. They all have, you know, they're all kind of arbitrary in that way. Do you worship this God or that God or whatever God? Whereas when we look at golden age, dynamic, rapidly changing societies, they all have certain things in common. They all look very similar. And because of that, we can identify in the past previous golden ages. We talked about this last episode, when you, whether it be Florence or Greece and Athens or whatever else it may be, they all look kind of similar. Rapid innovation in art, rapid innovation in other areas as well, rapid innovation in science and engineering and everything else. And I thought, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting idea why they look the same. And one of them is because, of course, the truth is singular. And when you have a society that is being critical of its ideas, you will converge towards reality, towards the truth. Um, I guess my, my, my closing thoughts for these two chapters would be to value that process, value criticism, value critical thinking, be on the lookout for memes that are anti that kind of behavior. The two most obvious would probably be bigotries like racism or something. He gives those in the book. Everybody knows these all. Those are all fine. But we should always be looking to challenge our challenge our thinking, challenge our understanding. And the last thing that I would say is, um, you know, if there was one assignment from the episode, a homework assignment or something, it would be that really be appreciative, as I think all we all should be more of, of what, it, of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be creative, and that human beings are different for that reason. And if you see people trivializing that difference or being down on humanity, politely remind them that they are wrong and that we're not just other animals. We're not some kind of virus on you know, the planet or other, any other anti-human nonsense. Politely remind them that they are incorrect and explain what makes us different. And uh, if you want to know... What makes us different? Check out Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Excellent. Excellent. I've got nothing to add to that. Very good. Well, I I love this book. I love this author. Um, we are nearing the end. We will be talking about chapters 17 and 18 next time. Um, and uh, closing out the book. So we hope to, that we uh, see everybody joining us here today. We hope to see you all next weekend. Joe, we uh, wish you the best of luck on your travels through the, through the European uh, countryside. Um, and we'll check in next week. Be sure to follow us on our social media at roses underscore rhetoric at Jose four underscores rhetoric. That's going to be for Twitter and for Instagram. And of course, we're obviously on YouTube as well. Just search Rose's Rhetoric, you'll pop right up. Until next time, I am Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.